0: Startups Podcast.
1: You just need the packaging to shout off the shelf.
0: It's a different world when you actually think about adding value. But to be able to play now is definitely going to require some new thinking out there. Think,
1: think, think, think. Hang out with us and learn how to grow your food business. Think, think, think. Today is a great episode for anyone that's looking for resources and ideas for your small Food business. So, we have the founder and CEO of Indie Food Hub, a resource providing services to small and medium sized food businesses. He is driven to change the food system for the better, creating greater access for independent producers. He also has a background in human rights work, environmental work, and freelance journalism, which means that every facet of the Indie Food Hub is covered by or colored by a triple bottom line perspective. He is enthusiastic about food, eating, talking about it, improving it. In his free time, he can be found climbing trees with his kids, running, and trying his hand at writing the great American novel. Corey Hill, how's it going?
0: It is going well. Got some ways to go on that great American novel though.
1: We all do. I think everyone's passed through a time where they want to they want to do it, but uh, sitting down and making it happen is is another thing. Indeed, I um, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a writer. I like writing. It seems like one of the keys to being a good writer, besides reading a lot of books, which we'll get into, is living. I'd say living an interesting life. I mean, what are some of the interesting things that are going on or have gone on in your life over the years?
0: I actually lived the. The better part of my childhood, uh, moved around quite a bit. I lived in Germany for six years as a as a kid on a, a military base. That was a kind of interesting background. And then from from then on, my parents moved quite a bit. So I think that seeing different, you know, places uh, around the world and within the country, Minnesota, South Carolina, kind of gives you a different perspective on people and non-relationships. So. That was a fun way to grow up and I think informed a lot of my opinions uh, later on down the road.
1: And why was Germany interesting?
0: I think being an American in Germany was an interesting experience because it's kind of like a lens through which to notice things about your own culture that you might not otherwise because you don't have a contrast. We when when we, we meaning the Americans from the base, went to this big pool You know Germans have these big elaborate pool structures that are similar to like a Disney water park except they're like they're public pools So they have water slides and they have all these things happening there, you know, all the kids go and up until I don't know like 10 years old German kids do not wear bathing suits and so I still think back to like when I was a kid All the American kids are running around in bathing suits and all the German kids are just running around naked. And I still have this memory of like this very early difference in American attitudes towards nudity and those sorts of things that I think if you didn't have that contrast, it would have been something I never would have thought about.
1: I love that because there's a lot of things that you take for granted that you just do because it's done that way, not because of logic. And having lived in South America for six years now, I see a lot of those same things. And yeah, I agree. It's important to have that perspective. I was just in Nuremberg uh, earlier this year. I was really impressed by just how efficient, everything runs there.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of what they're known for, right? I mean, there's this stereotype of them sort of being like humorless and trains arrive on time, but being a child, I picked up on very different things, but I still to this day hear things from my parents just about how differently everything was for them living there as adults too.
1: Totally. And I think sometimes, we'll call them stereotypes, I don't mean that in a good or bad way, but just cultural traits, at least the ones that we think we know Sometimes just having those subconsciously, it, you know, it would be like the confirmation bias. You'll kind of look for that even if you're not intentionally doing it. Yep. Like, was this the 80s or the 90s in, in
0: Germany? 80s, yeah. So my dad was in the army and we were in uh, Bavaria, Southern Germany. So we, I don't know where it is, but I have some pieces of the Berlin Wall somewhere. And my dad still has a bunch of random like East German stuff that he got as part of his work.
1: Wow, okay, cool. Okay, so you go to college in Orlando, have a great time, you get out and you start into human rights and environmental work. So tell us some stories from that. What, like, what were some of the things that you're passionate about then and now? Um, and what did you do?
0: Sure, I should add, however, that wasn't exactly a direct route. I actually worked in restaurant management uh, before that. So it's pretty circuitous. But during that time that I was doing human rights work, I was doing a lot of fundraising, which is just the kind of engine of the nonprofit world. It's always on the minds of everybody there, even if they're not in fundraising like I was. In addition to that, I always really enjoyed the organizing aspect in terms of rallies and marches and speaking at those types of engagements. I was really involved in work around fracking, both in terms of the campaign side of it and writing about it. That was one of the cover stories I did at East Bay Express was around fracking in California. Even actually had both of my kids speak a little bit on stage at a fracking rally as well.
1: Wow. And okay, so I'm going to present to you an argument. I don't, this is not my argument, but I have a friend, uh, she's an environmentalist. And what she told me, I'd like to see your perspective here. She said, Matt, fracking is not good or bad. The problem is fracking is not regulated. And when it's unregulated, it can cause a ton of damage. Do you agree with that statement?
0: Not really. Even in the best case scenario, a well-regulated version of fracking still uses 13 million gallons of water per instance of doing this. Not even total. Every time they frack a the well, 13
1: million gallons of water?
0: 13 mi- million with an M. But so wow. we're in a state where water is being rationed, but they're still fracking uh, wells uh, throughout the state. So 13 million gallons of water, for example, is being used up every time. So that's a best case scenario. Best case scenario they're not 100% sure about the impacts on earthquakes, but there's increasing evidence that it can actually, I mean, surprise, surprise, when you're breaking up rock formations deep under the ground, it has some impact on seismic activity, you know, can cause earthquakes. So I think regulation would be great, but I tend to take the kind of, I don't know if you remember the one of the debates in the primary between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton where he said, my answer is much simpler. I just say, no, that's kind of how I feel about fracking. Regulating could make it better, but it would still be terrible, even in a best case scenario.
1: So it's really interesting. Uh, Have you seen the movie or read the book, The Big Short? I have fantastic book fantastic movie so michael burry who's played by christian bale i guess they talked about this at the end of the movie and kind of like the epilogue how he's investing in in water companies and especially and this relates to what i'm doing so i work in agriculture looking at i guess almond farms or farms that have access to a lot of water and water is a prized prized resource so that's uh getting the conscious out there about water rights and saving water and planning ahead uh, really, really important stuff. Yeah. But, um,
0: I I mean, I agree wholeheartedly, both from the, if you're interested in food perspective, I think obviously you're cognizant of how water intensive agriculture is, but outside of that, you see a lot of these flash points, especially in your neck of the woods in in South America and Central America around water privatization and the issues of access just as a human right. So I think increasingly going forward, you're going to hear more and more about conflicts over water.
1: And when you say privatization, is that, because I think a lot about Latin America in this style, just kind of like the rich people owning the water and then kind of...
0: Yeah, or, uh, or a company like Nestle, one of those folks. I can't remember. I can't remember exactly where it was, but there was an instance where the municipal water supply was bought out by a private corporation and then... The people, their rates went up significantly for access to water. So what was typically thought of as a human right, access to clean water, is then being repackaged as a consumer good you have to pay to have access to this water. Oh, wow.
1: So that's going to be interesting to follow Uh, as things advance. Hopefully uh, that will be broken up or or taken care of. Corey, I want to get in to... Indie Food Hub. So listeners, this podcast can be found at foodstartupspodcast.com slash Indie Food Hub. Indie is I-N-D-I-E, like indie music. And the website is indiefoodhub.com. And, uh, you know, membership, articles, classes, resources. I really like the articles. There's a lot of stuff to offer food entrepreneurs here. How long ago did you start this? And are you focused right now just on the Bay Area?
0: So I'll tackle I'll tackle those questions in the order they were asked. In terms of the idea, the conception of Indie Food Up, it had been it's been knocking around for about three years. We had the LLC way back then, but it existed more as a concept that actually was born out of my wanting to start a pop up restaurant and realizing how incomplete the the framework it was for these types of non traditional and, and small food businesses.
1: What was missing?
0: Uh everything. Where to find financing, where to bend, what the permitting process looks like. Anything that you can think of, a lot of the resources were geared towards your traditional models. I want to start a brick and mortar restaurant, or I have $500,000 and I want to start a new packaged goods company that will then be acquired by Procter & Gamble. But for the folks who were, I want to start a pop-up and rent space from the Chinese restaurant that is only open at lunch. That sort of network, even in San Francisco, which is kind of on the, the cutting edge of these types of things, was incomplete. So one of the driving forces behind Indie Food Hub was not that you know you can't find this piece of information here or that that set of things there, but that they tend to be disparate. And the idea for this was that we would index and collate and bring things together all in one place and further as we were surveying what was out there realizing that there are pieces and services missing and where we saw that need to create a service to fill that so that was the the ethos and the model behind it and as to where we stand now most of the content and services especially the services are geared towards the bay area as a test with the eye towards being able to distribute these services on a more national basis as we grow.
1: That's awesome. And how has the feedback been so far?
0: It's been good. I mean, so we certainly have more requests or or more needs than we have been able to fully develop services for in the time since we've really been launched, which is actually as a website and as a series of resources, we really only launched in December of this year. So During that time period, or December of 2015, I should say. So during that time period, we've, you know, heard, I'm a small food business, and I need this, or I'm a small food business, and I need that. And every time we hear something more than once, we make a note of it and have an index of where we hope to be in five years and 10 years, and, you know, that vision will hopefully be able to address all of those. But got to get there.
1: That's interesting. So I use that exact same rule. Every time I have more than one person, we'll say two to five people, ask me for a certain type of guest, like a food broker, like a distributor, etc. That's when I bring them on the show.
0: I think that's a good because if it's a one-off, you have limited limited time, limited attention. It's, it's not worthy. But the second that you start to hear mul- multiple different people, organizations asking about something. I think that's the point at which you got
1: to say, okay. And I want to add one thing to what you're saying. It's so true because just a lot of websites are, are curating information. You know, those stats about like the number, like the amount of information added every hour or like every day, or how like the amount of information on the internet triples every, I'm making this up. but something like three months or three years. A lot of businesses can just be curating and putting information in one place. So how, would I? I have a small food business. How do I want to interact with Indie Food Hub as a small food biz entrepreneur?
0: Sure. So the idea behind the, the resources that we put in there were exactly that, that we wanted it to be um, scalable and searchable by criteria that are meaningful. So if you're looking for financing, for example, we, what we realized is that there are they tend to break out along certain lines. Now, these things aren't set in stone, but there's a certain set of things that make sense for you if you're looking for $10,000 or less. If you're looking for twenty dollars to $50,000, then there's a certain set of things that tend to work, and so on. So the way that we indexed a lot of the finance organizations was by that very same rubric. I'm looking for X number of dollars. I am here. And you, you put in those criteria, and you're able to find what you're looking for. I noticed so that. that
1: was- Corey, sorry to interrupt, but I thought that was brilliant because- saying just I'm looking for financing is really vague, right? Because are you like a $10 million company that's looking for like a $5 million, like big venture investment, or are you just starting up and you just need $500 Yeah, to buy like a fryer or something?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they're very, they're very different. The process for securing like a Kiva zip loan, for example, is I don't want to say it's idiot proof because they obviously have some folks who, who don't complete, but it is very, um, User friendly and geared towards folks who need five hundred to ten thousand dollars, and that's very different than I'm a CPG company that needs to open up a new facility.
1: So yeah, and and that really brings me to your resources page because you spent time, I believe, curating. I don't think everyone submitted their own I believe that you curate a lot of these resources based on the needs of your users. And I encourage listeners to check it out. There's tons and tons. It's just amazing how many different organizations are there. And to start out, I'd like to, and I'll link to this on the the show notes, but, but Corey, can you highlight maybe two or three resources on there that really impress you or think are really, really important for food entrepreneurs?
0: Sure. So one of the organizations I would highly recommend checking out is the Food Craft Institute. They are based out in Oakland. A friend of ours that we've known for a while named Allie runs the organization. They're also the folks who put on the Eat Real Festival every year, uh, which was actually just this past weekend and was a great experience for Finding local food vendors and and really getting a feel for the local food community, but their institution exists in a similar niche to Indie Food Hub. They've been they've been around for a while, creating workshops and really an educational framework for small and medium food businesses. So I heard them talking about the Eat Real Festival, and they were seeing businesses that had a really good great product and maybe would do really well at this event but then they weren't there next year and when they would talk to them they were realizing that a lot of food entrepreneurs have proficiency in food they know how to make a great product whether that's an empanada or a cheesecake but everything else beyond that they didn't consider how much should I price this how do I approach buyers how do I get into farmers markets and that, that whole sort of set of questions that also fueled a lot of the thinking behind Indie Food Hub was really integral to the Food Craft Institute and the, the educational programs that they put together for people, whether that's for folks wanting to start kombucha or they have workshops around financing. And so for anyone who is in this space and looking to get some really hands-on instruction from folks in the know. Definitely recommend check, checking
1: them out. That's awesome. And, and Corey, I will mention uh, two other resources. So I've started to kind of network, you know, we're all in the same space here. My podcast with Small Food Biz, who's Jennifer Lewis out of Seattle. I'm not sure if you know her, but she's got an excellent website and she had a baking business that she sold. And now she's kind of gotten into podcasting and helping out smaller food businesses. And then in Vancouver, Okay, somewhere in Canada, it may not be Vancouver. I don't want to embarrass myself here, but somewhere in Canada, Juliet with food grads. These things are starting to pop up. I think it's amazing because we need like a lot of people to start sharing this type of information because, like you said, it's in the opaque space. And Corey, I have to have to say. So preparing for this episode in my Google Chrome browser, listeners, I don't know if you know what a favicon is, but it's when you have a tab on the website and you look at the title, it's like a little logo. It can be the logo of the company and they have what appears to be a corn taco. And before I recorded this podcast, I just got back from the gym and I haven't had time to eat and I look at it and I'm like, I actually visualize a real corn taco. Just thought I'd let you know that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I have to give special credit to the designer that we went with. for for this project, for really thinking through every little detail like that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's, so it's very difficult hiring a designer sometimes, and we've had episodes about packaging, but even designing for websites, because, you know, what is good design? It's easier to say, like, what is like a good refrigerator, right? Like capacity, um, you know, how much energy it uses, the way it's laid out, right? But it's more difficult to to evaluate as a tangible asset. But I, they did a great job on, on your website, I must say. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention, because so I have a background in like SEO and, and things with Google. And one of the things I'm sure everyone's seen is the info box. So so Google's getting smarter, right? It's, a, it's an AI machine. But I could see your website answering certain questions, like someone in the San Francisco area searching, I'd like to put my product in a, a farmer's market in Mission area of San Francisco and Indie Food Hub could show up in the info box results, which is for anyone that doesn't know what info box results are. If you search for what time is it in Dubai or how many inches in a foot, things like that. Um, a lot of websites can show up if they become a good resource of information. And it's, it's a great way to bring people into your site.
0: Yeah, and that—not the, necessarily the Google SEO portion of it, but very much the the wanting it to be a one-stop resource was very intentional on our part. And I have to give credit to again the the folks from New Era Marketing who did the design portion of it for really integrating all you know the SEO into it as we went along. Sounds
1: great. And Corey, after the show, send me um, the link to that company so I can link them in the show notes for people that are looking for a, a web designer.
0: Yeah, I have, I have to say, you you hit the nail on the head when you were saying that it's not always easy to to find good design, you know, graphic design, web design. It was a lot of hard trial and error and learning by getting the wrong ones first. Yeah.
1: Um, it's tough. It's, it is really tough. Uh, Corey, moving on. I wanted to talk about something really cool that's not linked on the website, or at least not on the main part of the website, called Vittle Bus, which is a, a business underneath Indie Food Hub, you know, the umbrella brand. And uh, yeah, I mean, in your words, tell us why you started Vittle Bus. I would think feedback from small food businesses, but uh, in your own words, tell us how you started it, um, and where it's going.
0: Sure. So to go back to the rule of anytime time you hear more than two people mention something, you know, that it's something to consider. We are always out there with small and medium food businesses at networking events and at our own events. And two things kept coming up repeatedly. Financing, which is, you know, anytime you're with any small business owner, that's going to happen. And then delivery. We put out an email that said, hey, what do you need help with? And just from that email, we got seven or eight people that said, delivery, delivery, delivery. And a light bulb went off as we started talking to these folks and other folks who were maybe corporate buyers or had some, some experience on the distribution side of things and realized that there are still a, a pretty good number of gaps in, in the model for po- folks who are small and medium food businesses and so we just started out purchasing a single delivery vehicle and started service in may with just a few customers and since that time period we've we've hired a driver we're getting a refrigerated vehicle this week and we'll we'll likely add an additional two or three vehicles in the next four or five months
1: that's exciting and uh so yeah, a theme of this episode, right? If you're going to be the resource for small to mid-sized food businesses, you got to listen to your customers and it's good to see that theme applied, not just on the website, but the, the businesses and services you're offering. Well, uh, Corey, I want to finish up here. So when it comes to the great American novel, I'm sure you're inspired by great American novels. What are some of your, and they don't have to be American, but what are some of the, your favorite fiction books that you've read?
0: Uh, so I'm actually a huge Salman Rushdie fan, who's probably most familiar for the the book the Satanic Verses, which is the one that got the fatwa issued against him. He also has a book called uh, Midnight's Children. That's one of my tops of all time. In the, in the realm of genre, I'm a big fan of Dune. So every couple of years, I have to pick that one up and, and read it as well. Got it.
1: Cool. Well, Corey, if listeners want to get in touch with you with any questions they have, especially maybe they're working on things not in San Francisco and another part of the country or whatever, uh, just want to shout out and say hi, or uh, maybe recommend a book to you. Uh, where can they reach you?
0: Sure. It's Corey, C-O-R-E-Y at IndieFoodHub.com. Uh, and Indie is, as you mentioned earlier, like Indie Music, I-N-D-I-E.
1: Great. All right, man. Hey, Hey, Corey. Please keep us up to date with FiddleBus, any things you're doing on your website or new brands that you start underneath Indie Food Hub. We're happy to spread the word. Um, And thanks so much for coming on the show.
0: Excellent. Well, Thank you for having me.
1: Hey guys, thanks so much for listening and as always if you have any questions or comments find us online at foodstartupspodcast.com